9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. As our listeners know, every so often when we find a great book that we think you should read, we do a special uh, show where we talk to the author of the book. In this case, we are speaking to Jillian Ted, who's the editor at large of the Financial Times, uh, who has written a new uh, and fascinating book called Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life. Uh, and we are also joined by Jillian's Financial Times colleague uh, and our regular and Fred, friend, Ed Luce. Hi, Jillian. Hi, Ed. Hi, and I think David, you're outnumbered by British accents today. Yes, and I've and it makes me feel inadequate. I, I just want you to know that, but uh, there's probably an anthropological reason for that, and uh, that's why you know your book is uh, so helpful. I, I would say, you know, in my, in my reading of it, you know, I I felt it was kind of a, a useful exercise for anybody who's immersed in a world to take a step back and to look at it with fresh eyes. Uh, and you even describe a kind of a process, how to do that, that draws upon your training as a, as, as a PhD uh, anthropologist. Um, and, and, and that's why I think it's such a, a great and refreshing book. And I think that's why the reviews have indicated that. So let me begin with saying congratulations. Well, thank you. And let me turn the first question to your colleague, Mr. Luce. Uh, thank, thank you, David, and congrats, Gillian, um, uh, for this book and, and great early reviews. Um, you are um, looking uh, at the world through the eyes of an anthropologist, and a lot of the world, since you got your PhD in the 90s, has turned into whatever subject we're talking about, a branch of mathematics, as far as I can see even the sort of most humanities end of humanities wants to imitate mathematics. And of course, economics, most economics is just beyond recall um, at this point. So it seems to me what you're doing is making a plea for qualitative empathy with other minds, curiosity about other minds and other ways of thinking that is not sort of subjects to both the rigor, but also the um, blight of of data mania, uh, the data mania that we're living in. Is that the right way of thinking about what you're recommending? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you put it very well. Um, I mean, Ed, you and I have been in journalism for about the same length of time, I think. And I think in that period, we've seen the intellectual tools that dominate finance and business and policy making and even foreign policy um, really become shaped by a lot of quantitative analysis a lot of bounded analysis, a lot of models. You know, people put things into a model and then out of that, they think they get the answer to whatever problem they're trying to solve. And what I'm trying to say is really two things. One is that in a world increasingly shaped by artificial intelligence, which is the ultimate natural, you know, extreme of that quantitative approach, we need to celebrate another type of AI, which I call anthropology intelligence. 
And that's really trying to look at the cultural context and the environment in which we're creating all of those models. Or to use another image, in a world where we are often shaped by tools that have got tunnel vision, like economic models, whatever you put into the model is what you look at, you ignore everything else. Same thing with corporate balance sheets or often political polls. In a world of tunnel vision, we need to use lateral vision and look at the context of what we're doing. And that's particularly important when the context is changing the business sphere or the economic sphere, but in the geopolitical sphere as well. You can't always presume that the recent past these models and quantitative tools. How would you sort of practically um, implement that advice? I mean, it's clear that each of us as individuals should follow what you're um, recommending, making the familiar strange and the strange familiar, as you put it. Um, but if you're running a company or indeed, you know, heading an administration, how do you sort of put that into practice? You can do it for yourself, for your own brain. How do you do it for an organization? Well, since you're sitting in Washington, um, maybe you could start by upholding one of the great political principles in the American political system, which is checks and balances. And in a sense, what anthropology is, is a way of getting intellectual checks and balances in whatever endeavor or discipline you're working in. And it's a way of actually stepping out of your skin or out of your professional expertise and pausing for a second and thinking, does this make sense if it was seen by other people? And that's important to do right now, partly for reasons of simply improving the policy process or running a business. Um, but it's also because we live in a world where anybody who's trying to govern anything, whether it's Congress, a company, um, you know, anything at all, educational place, is dealing with increasingly fractured, polarized climate. And we have this terrible paradox in the world today in that we're both simultaneously globalized and we're all exposed to each other in ways we often don't understand, and yet we're very polarized. So another reason to think about anthropology and the need to have lateral vision and to think about cultural context is to recognize that we need to do better at getting some empathy for different points of view and different ways of living. And what anthropology basically does, to go back to David's original point, is really embark on a sort of three-stage process. You, first of all, try and immerse yourself in the minds and lives of people who are different from you, get some curiosity for that. Um, and then that not only gives you empathy for another way of thinking and seeing, but it also gives the ability to look back at yourself with more clarity and above all else to see what you're missing in your life, the kind of social silences that you may not be talking about. And when you wrap that all together, those principles, you get a much more holistic way of looking at the world that complements, it doesn't displace, but complements other methods like economic models or um, big data sets. So one of the things that strikes me about the book, that, I mean, first of all, I should say, and, and this of course um, is to be expected given your past books and, and writing, but this is an extremely well-written book, extremely accessible, really, a beautifully done book. And, and part of that, of course, is that you tell stories and you give evidence of why this perspective is so vital. And, and often that evidence is where people have gone wrong in their political assessments or their uh, business assessments, or even in their journalistic assessments. Can you give us an example of one or two of those? Well, I can start with a very, um, you know, silly example, if you like, which is with, or not silly, not at all, but, you know, le less trivial, more trivial example, which is a nursery chain in um, the southern states based in Atlanta, 
which couldn't understand why um, its nursery offerings were not being as popular as they used to be amongst parents. And it had all the big data in the world tracking what parents did when they went to the website and how they behaved and what was happening inside the nurseries with the kids and stuff like that. And nothing about it actually changed. Um, and that's because in many ways, one of the problems with big data is that you have amazing um, examples of correlations. You, big data can tell you what's happening. It can't tell you why. And it wasn't until some ethnographers, anthropologists went in and observed the parents as they went around the schools and spoke with the nursery, um, nursery leaders and actually tried to observe them as they talked about their everyday life, they realized that this cultural split had opened up between the way that Generation X, people like me, saw childcare and the way that the millennials saw it. And it revolved around very subtle issues like whether they took the advice of experts about childcare or not. You know, Generation X assumed if you put a doctor on a stage and tell you how to look after your toddler, everyone's going to listen. Whereas millennials were actually listening to themselves. So that's a very, um, that's a very, um, you know, I wouldn't say trivial example, but it's not going to change the world. A much more serious example looks at the question of pandemics. And I first looking, started looking at this actually in relation to Ebola, but it turned out to have horrible significance as well with COVID. And if you look at something like efforts to stop pandemics and the use of face masks, um, there's all kinds of evidence from the medical world that actually they tend to go hand in hand, they're correlated with a reduction in the spread of pandemics. And people initially thought, well, that's because they stop germs. They physically have that barrier from medical science and they mean that infections don't circulate as much. Well, that's part of it. But going back to my point again about correlation not being causation, um, anthropologists who studied the use of face masks in Asia, back in the Asian um, epidemics like SARS, realized that actually another reason or two more reasons why face masks are useful is that the psychological prompt of putting on a face mask each day, the ritual, helps to change behavior. And the signaling device culturally of actually showing people by wearing a face mask that you're upholding social norms is pretty important too. Now, you can't prove that with a spreadsheet. You can't use wonderful you know, algorithms to demonstrate how those social and cultural factors matter, but they do. And I firmly believe that if you look at what way that the pandemic and the face mask cultures have developed, in the Western world in different ways in recent months, that if only we'd learned that lesson earlier in the stages of COVID-19, we could have actually done a much better job of containing the spread earlier on. We also might draw the conclusion that members of the Republican Party understood this better than, than the members of the Democratic Party because they made wearing a mask a kind of social signal. And, they, and that led to people not wearing the mask because they didn't want to send the signal that they were following the guidelines of the state. Absolutely. I mean, that's a classic example where basically face masks got overlaid with all kinds of cultural signaling devices. And one thing that's, thing that's fascinating is that if you go back two years or so, um, the symbolism of face mask was quite different. It was really more of a sign of stigma. Um, and associated, if anything, with you know what was perceived, you know, as Asian culture, which was different at the time, was seen as different from American culture. So one of the points I'd make is that symbols change, cultural patterns change, and culture alone doesn't explain things. Usually, you want to have a combination of culture and hard science. But when put in combination, you have a much richer way of looking at the world. Um, all the metaphors I sometimes use is that, you know, 
using some of the tools of anthropology and other social sciences, behavioral sciences, it's a bit like adding salt to food in that it binds the ingredients together and it makes it taste better. And it basically helps us to get the checks and balances on medical science, economic science, data science, um, all the other areas um, that we actually you know, want to try and shed light on in the modern world. And one last, one last thing I'll share with you very quickly is the other way to look at anthropology is it's dedicated to the worm's eye view. Um, a lot of the tools we have, like economics, tend to be more bird's eye view. They look across the entire picture, sometimes from an ivory tower. Anthropologists tend to go into a situation and look bottom up. And that's also incredibly important in the foreign policy realm, where again, as a checks and balance, it can provide much more color um, on whatever theories, diplomats or top-down bird's eye view foreign policy um, people may be developing. Excellent point. Ed? Um, Gillian, you, you mentioned um, the younger gener millennials, generation Z or Z as we would pronounce it, um, and the fact that we're both Gen X. Um, David's obviously greatest generation, is that correct, David? Um, <laughs> but anyway, sorry. Yeah, Neanderthal. <laughs> the Neanderthal generation, I wasn't going to say anything. When you look at the people under 30, under 35, and the impact that technology um, has had on their um, good and bad cognitive development and how different they are from, from us, so David's grandchildren, great-grandchildren, <laughs> that, that generation. Um, they're all in college now. They're all in college now. Um, how, how equipped do you think they would be to take your very sage advice in how, and how we can look at the world through anthropological eyes? Because it requires patience and context and time. I agree. And it also requires the courage to go and embrace culture shock and put yourself somewhere different and be willing to roam and collide with the unexpected. And that's a very hard thing to do these days. Um, not just because we've had a lockdown, which has basically kept people, many, many people confined to their homes and made them quite myopic, um, myself included. We all know when you're trapped in a small space with people just like you for a long period of time, we all tend to become myopic. And um, we've also been infused with fear. And I noticed that, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, I couldn't wait to get out, leave, leave my house, leave home, go travel, go backpack around the world, take a gap year. Um, I don't know many teenagers who are gagging to do that right now, even if they could, because of the sense of, you know, myopia and fear coming in. And on top of all that, you've got other big issues, like the fact that, you know, relying on a world with increased um, focus on digital technologies is tending to not only make people um, have a shorter attention span, but it also drags them into cyber tunnels too, because increasingly in a world of customized information, we choose to only not just be with people like ourselves, but get information from sources that we know. And that creates this kind of feedback loop um, of you know, echo chambers and ghettos. And there's one other thing, which I think is fascinating to think about politically, which is this issue of customization and pick and nicks and how it's extrapolated elsewhere. Because if you look back at the sweep of history, most cultures and most points in history around the world have viewed the individual as being a derivative of society. And basically you as an individual were like a cog that fitted in and your identity was given to you. The 20th century was created the me generation, 
where increasingly we, we began to think society was a derivative of the individual and I had a right to sit at the center of my world. The 21st century has given us with technology a world where we all assume we're not just at the center of the world, but we can customize the world as we want. And whether that's through our coffee choices or through our music playlists, I mean, nobody today would accept what you and I grew up with, which was a vinyl record with someone else's choices of music on that record. You want to have your own playlist that you customize exactly as you want. We do that with food, we do that with clothes. And I think we're starting to do that with politics as well because people are pick and mixing political ideas rather than necessarily gravitating around preset political parties. Um, and so that's another area where cultural analysis can help us frame some of the bigger pictures about what's happening in politics. One, one of the, I mean, Ed referred to this structure of the book, and I think the first section is called Making the Strange Familiar, and then the next section is, is, is about making the familiar strange. Making the familiar strange is harder. It's harder for people to break out and, and, and look objectively at the world in, that they occupy all the time. And I, you know, to me, um, I think one of your great strengths as a, as a journalist, commentator, and writer is your ability to do that. But, but I have to be honest, a lot of journalists don't. And in fact, there are a lot of journalists who cover Wall Street, who only talk to Wall Street people, who only speak the language of Wall Street, uh, use the data that's relevant in Wall Street, um, you know, consume that conventional wisdom. Same with true with Washington. They don't see what's missing. They become not just part of the group thing, but they kind of enforce the group thing. Seems to me there's a very strong message of your book, not just to business leaders or political leaders um, or consumers of information, but to the media. Do you, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a journalist, agree? Absolutely. And you said it very well, David. And in fact, I know it's something you've been trying to do as well in your own journalistic career. Um, but no, I feel that very, very strongly indeed, because, you know, I think for two reasons. First of all, insofar as we're going to look at other professions and say that they have myopic tunnel vision, we need to recognize that we journalists have myopic tunnel vision often ourselves too. We create silos or ghettos um, which reflect the world around us if we're not careful. Um, but secondly, you know, there is a really big public interest issue right now around the dissemination of information and the media. And, you know, I passionately believe that journalism at its best is about exposing social silences. It's about talking about the areas of life that make us uncomfortable or we ignore because they're taboo or geeky or dull or wrapped up in technological language. And by the way, often those areas of social silence are not really to do with plots per se, that some evil cabal is devised. They're to do with parts of our lives where technical experts rule and essentially seem to be doing such complex geeky stuff that we ignore it, like credit derivatives in 2005 and six in the financial system, like the world of ad tech in Silicon Valley um, back in 2010, 2012, when all the things that were happening with um, the data <coughs> persuasion games were hidden in plain sight. So journalism, I think, should be poking into the geeky, seemingly dull, taboo worlds. Um, but to do that, they need to have space and time and curiosity and a media environment that encourages them to do that. And that's difficult today because the reality is that the media is under such pressure financially. 
there's a constant noise and there's such a competition to grab attention in that noisy environment um, that listening to social silences, which is what you need to do to try and see the parts of the world we're ignoring, is often very hard. Yeah, and you know, it, it also strikes me, uh, and it's a subject Ed and I've talked about to some degree, uh, you know, it's a problem faced by economists. There are some macroeconomists who look at macroeconomic formulas and say, oh my goodness, we might have 3% inflation this year instead of 2% inflation. And they don't look at the other issues involved like human lives, you know, how people are affected by their policies, whether it's a, it's a fair trade-off, you know, it, because the trade half the trade-off is not shown in the equation, right? Half the trade-off is, is human and they don't, they don't get that. Well, or, or they don't look at the environment. I mean, the environment for years was treated as a externality, meaning something that was external to the model that could be ignored, or it was a footnote on the, you know, on the, in the corporate accounts of companies. Um, and of course, now we realize that simply ignoring those externalities is a mistake. And as Ed knows very well, you know, what you have now going on inside the White House is a very lively debate or a very interesting shift in focus and policy in terms of how they imagine economics to try and move away from this narrow tunnel vision, quantitative based vision of macroeconomics to looking much more, as you say, David, at the human factor. Yeah, well, you mentioned earlier, you know, journalists focus on things that are, I believe I will quote you correctly, taboo, geeky and dull. And of course we know that that's Ed's specialty. So maybe I'll turn it. <laughs> Yeah, let let me start with uh, let me start with the blend of taboo and geeky. Um, I just want to pick pick up actually, Gillian, what you're saying about what's happened to our profession. And I have noticed, as I think David, you you probably have. To, well, lots of people have, but um, you included um, that the launch of Substack to sort of stress the geeky side of this question, where you know individuals charge whatever five dollars a month to for people to subscribe just to them that that brand name. Um, uh, and um, they've got no overhead. So, you know, if they're big brand names, they make a lot of money. And, and Twitter is essentially the fishing grounds for new subscribers. And the more cartoonish they are in their views, the more subscribers they'll catch with, with their, their trawlers. Um, and this tends to reinforce um, an incentive towards being very unnuanced very sort of definite in your positions. I mean, I can mention a few names, but Glenn Greenwald, Andrew, Andrew Sullivan on the right. I mean, the, the, there are lots of exceptionally bright people who've become much less bright, I think, because the business model tells them it pays to be less bright, less thoughtful. Um, how do you get around a problem like that? Uh, you know, I, I, I know I'm straying here a bit, but we are talking about the changing anthropology of journalistic culture. It's becoming a very, very, you talked about the me generation. It's like me on steroids um, and it, it pays. It does pay. And the honest answer is I don't have um, an easy solution other than make every child in America read Antrovision. Um, but that, you know, the joking, no, I think it's a problem. I think that, you know, I think for example, in schools today, we teach our kids about cyber hygiene, cyber bullying, cyber hacking, cyber terrorism. We should be telling them upfront about cyber tribalism and drilling home the message that you know there are a bunch of tools and and industries which are essentially incentivized to drag you into tunnels 
and to basically make you one dimensional. And we need to fight that. So education would be one thing. Um, I would think that there are things that tech companies can do. Um, you know, now they may not be incentivized to do that right now, but having, you know, tools or products which would actually butt in or try to, you know, offer an alternative point of view, a little alternative news story, and the kind of serendipitous encounter or collision you might have if you were like skimming the pages of a newspaper or flicking between channels. Trying to introduce some elements of that into the online social media world wouldn't be impossible. Um, I know that there are some companies who are thinking about that. Um, regulators, I'm not sure I hate to look at a regulatory solution, but regulators could start trying to lay down some kind of overarching balance, um, norms or rules, not so much on the sub-channels, but on some of the you know, bigger media groups, for example. Again, that's not my favorite um, suggested idea at all. But the other thing, of course, perhaps most importantly of all, is we should look to our leaders to demonstrate um, a bit of anthrovision themselves, dare I say it. I mean, instead of spending all their time demonizing others, um, wouldn't it be nice if we actually saw from time to time some examples in Congress or anywhere else of people actually trying to just however briefly embrace or endorse someone else's point of view, or if not embrace it, try and spend a millisecond walking in someone else's shoes for once. David, I know you're about to wrap up, but can I ask a quick final question? Um, I was just thinking of Gillian's first, your first book, Fool's Gold, or your, your first sort of well-known book, um, Big Success, about Wall Street culture and subcultures and credit derivatives, et cetera, that you referred to earlier. That was an extremely toxic subculture to, in terms of its impact um, on the rest of society and indeed the world economy. Is there an area today where you think we must be most worried about this particular subculture and, and, and what it can do to the rest of us? Well, after I spent a lot of time hanging out with you know, people who created financial instruments, I noticed that some of them were then going into this world of ad tech. And ad tech is a you know, posh word for basically all of the stuff that delivered Cambridge Analytica, and which continues to be absolutely central to the way that politics and campaigning is done today, which is basically big data analysis and targeted big data messaging um, in the quotes persuasion game. Um, and so, you know, I was always astonished that no one was paying attention to this before 2016 and got very interested. And I tell the story of, uh, or rather a different slant on Cambridge Analytica and my dealings with Cambridge Analytica um, in the book uh, in relation to this. But I think the one of the things that came out of that is the extraordinary power that sits in the hands today of geeky, people who know about technology and internet stuff that the rest of us don't. And if there's one area I think we should really be looking today, it's in the realm of AI. And who is setting the ground rules? Who's developing things? Who's actually trying to, you know, test the limits of that technology? Because that's another very geeky silo, which most of us do not understand at all, myself included. But it's very telling that Peter Thiel, um, sorry, not, not Peter Thiel, um, um, the person who runs Talantia, Alex Park, when he filed, made a public filing um, for an IPO last summer, in his submission to the SEC, he actually included a passage where he pointed out that essentially society today has outsourced many of the most difficult decisions about AI to a tiny bunch of nameless, faceless geeks that no one knows anything at all about. And that essentially these people have extraordinary powers in their hands and they don't want it necessarily 
they're pro almost certainly not equipped to handle it because they have tunnel vision par excellence. Um, but unless we as society, voters and politicians, spend more time trying to look at what the geeks are doing, we could end up potentially in a very dangerous place. Ed said that was the final question. It won't be because I'll allow myself the prerogative of a final question before I wrap it up. And But this is, it sort of goes to your own background and to a, a prejudice of mine. One of the reasons I was drawn to the book is that this idea that, you know, in the, in the world we live in today, which is highly competitive, you know, people go to college and decide they're going to go and and work in AI, or they're going to go and work in, um, uh, you know, uh, asset management when they're 18 years old, and they end up, you know, committing themselves to one bubble, and they don't get perspective, and it's incredibly dangerous. There's no context, um, and so I was particularly interested, but you know, that um, young Jillian. Uh, went off to study the wedding rituals of Tajikistan, <laughs> 19. And I want to know why. <laughs> Is that a polite way of saying, wow, you must have been really weird. Um, and believe me, I've heard that comment from a lot of Wall Street people um, or usually saying, gosh, you must have been really hippie. Um, well, the answer is that I, as a teenager, was part of the generation that had the luxury of enough stability and security. And it was a luxury to have a sense of wanderlust and wanting a desire to have adventure and travel the world. And I actually first went off to Pakistan and then I went to Tibet and decided I wanted to do PhD and actually wanted to do that in Tibet and couldn't because of Tiananmen Square. And so a chance came up to go and study in Tajikistan, which was then a Soviet Republic just north of Afghanistan um, for a year, year and a half. Um, and I grabbed it. Um, and I did so because I was just obsessively curious about other places. I wanted adventure. And Tajikistan, Uzbekistan um, had always been a blank spot on my map. I didn't know anything about it and I wanted to find out. Um, and that was an extraordinary privilege and luxury. And I also had the privilege in England of having virtually free higher education. Um, I had a comfortable middle-class um, upbringing. So I didn't feel I had to get a job immediately. And I did roam for a few years and until I finally fell into journalism. And I'm extraordinarily grateful for having had that security and ability to roam. I know today that so many people do not have that. There's such a strong imperative in education to channel you into one area of expertise quickly. And that's reinforced in companies and professions. Um, and it's reinforced by economic pressure for many people. Um, but that's a tragedy and it's difficult, but somehow I would love to find a way in the world of an enabling more of us to roam. Um, I sometimes think, oddly enough, that if one could ever reconstitute national service um, in a wider sort of peacekeeping public service as well, that might be one way to break down some of the social um, ghettos we have today, force people to mix together, take them out of their worlds, expose them to other things, and then they would have a platform to actually think more widely about not just their society and their commitment to the wider national good, but also their own lives. But that's just a pipe dream. It's not a pipe dream, you know, because I think one of the, 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 the punchlines of this book is that people need to seek that blank spot on their map um, that, you, that you talk about. And that, you know, 
when we talk about artificial intelligence, we're always we're speaking, of course, about um, machine intelligence and algorithms. But there's a certain artificiality to any intelligence that lacks context. And what you are talking about in this book is making it a priority to seek context and to place um, decisions in that context. And that's the opposite of artificial intelligence. That's real intelligence. Um, and that's why the book's so important. And that's why we're really glad to have had the chance to have you on uh, to talk about it. Um, and uh, I, I certainly hope the book does well because the message of the book could not be more uh, timely uh, or, or important. So thank you very, very much, Jillian. Uh, uh, for those of you who uh, follow Jillian, I'm sure you will go and pick up the book. For those of you who don't, uh, but read her columns or see her on television, you know she is one of the most brilliant commentators that there is um, uh, writing about you know, business, finance, or politics, and uh, that should lead you to the book as well. Um, uh, Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life is the name of the book. Uh, go buy it, read it. Uh, thank you very, very much, Jillian. Thank you, Ed, for joining in on this. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, and for those of you who want to know more about what we've got coming, whether it's book shows or, or normal shows, um, uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you're there and you like what we're doing, click membership and support us. We're not on a sub stack. We're just a tiny, we're the world's smallest media company and we continue to try to do these things after four years. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye-bye and stay healthy.